what I want to do is devote an entire evening. We're going to come back into Sunday school method to giving a broad overview of the book of the Revelation. Now, I kind of hope that it would play out where I could would have been able to do this the very night that I started, but I'm kind of a week off. Um, I want to overview the approach that I think is going to be the most clearly outlined in the book itself. Um, the reason that I want to do this is because, as you can already tell, I don't plan on going through the book very quickly. Uh, my goal is not to get through it quick so that we all know what the revelation is about. Um, I want to use the book like I would anything else, and that is to primarily edify the congregation um, and to help our church. And so as I'm reading, like, like I did with the Gospel of Matthew, like I would do anywhere, as I'm reading, I'm not looking necessarily for clear demarcated chunks or paragraphs or headings. I begin to read, I begin to think and pray through the things that are there. And sometimes, uh, like this week, I had every intention of going through uh, the description of the Trinity. And then as I began to think about the phrase, grace to you and peace, and how useful that would be, and how uh, it, I, I could address that by itself. Um, well, that's what I plan to do throughout the entirety of the book. Um, so, I don't want to fly through it and get really quickly to all of the good stuff. And um, as occasions arise, as needs arise, just like we did with the Gospel of Matthew, we'll take rabbit trails, we'll take breaks. We could very well be in the book of the Revelation for another five, six, seven years. Um, the point being, it's not my intention to get the book of the Revelation. I think there's a lot that we're going to get just by walking through it very slowly. At the same time, I want you all to be able to at least to begin to read through the book and think through the, the book as a whole. So I don't want you waiting on me to get to chapter 12 before anybody knows what chapter 12 is. Uh, or again, chapter 11. You know, what, what are the two witnesses? Well, who are the two witnesses? I've got to know who the two witnesses are. Um, so I want to give like a, a sort of a broad sweeping overview of the letter so that some of these things, and I'm not going to give all the answers to all those questions tonight either, but I want to at least give an overview and I, because I think if you can see this, at least begin to put some of these pieces together, you're not going to have to ask me who the two witnesses are. Um, that's, that's kind of my goal. Um, Hopefully this bird's eye view of the book will not only aid in your personal study, but is going to keep me from having to spend too much time tracing back and forth various themes in the book. So when I come to a text, let's say we're in chapter 12, I don't have to say, now remember what we saw in chapter 1, and remember chapter 4, because it could be years between those two. I'll give this sweeping overview, and, and I will do that from time to time, but I don't want to have to be giving a lot of attention to that as I'm trying to preach through the book. Um, for what I'm doing this evening, you've got a, a page there in your hand. I'm uh, unashamedly leaning very heavily on William Hendrickson's book entitled More Than Conquerors. Um, it's a commentary. It's not a, it's not a very detailed, in-depth commentary. The reason I, that I love this his commentary is because it is sort of a sweeping, uh, broad view, but he does it in such a way that you walk away saying, this book is so simple. Um, it's, it's not a very detailed commentary. It's a fairly brief, uh, what we might call popular level explanation um, that I'm going to continue to use. Uh, the view that we're going to look at and that you're looking at, looking at there on that printed sheet, it's not his view. It's not like Hendrickson came up with this view. Many men throughout history have held this view. He just articulates it in a very simple way. And you can even see there are some of the things that he's got broken up in that little chart. Chapters 1 to 3. Okay, that's so simple because I know where chapter 1 starts. And I know where chapter 3 starts. Okay, so some guys might say, well, it's chapter 1 verse 4 through chapter 3. And then chapter 4 verse 2 through chapter... This is simple. And I want to try to keep it that way, even though some men uh, might be a little more specific in various areas. They might differ in some of the, the, the breaks that they put in the book, but he tackles it in a very simple way. 
That being said, if you can get a copy of that book, More Than Conquerors by William Hendrickson, it's a, it's a good book and it's not hard to read. I've got some books that are hard to read and I'm not looking forward to them. Uh, this is not one of those. The title of the approach that I'm going to be using that I think is the biblical or a biblical approach is, has been called synchronism. Now when, I hear, when you hear synchronism, hopefully you can hear the phrase in sync. And now you're picturing guys singing, you're picturing, no. Synchronism, working side by side together. It's also been called parallelism. So we've already seen in two sermons, this angel is revealing things to John by way of signs or symbols. John is going to testify to the things that he saw. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, the revelation. Now notice, and, and at least the word revelation or apocalypsis is singular. It's just one. One singular revelation is being made. So the signs that John is going to see point to God's perspective over the world in one singular revelation. That's the point. Not a bunch of different you know, out there spaced out throughout time and history revelations, but one single revelation, one perspective on the world. Now notice as we've walked through the introductory or the, the prologue, nowhere have we been given any reason to believe that what John sees with his eyes is a chronological series of events that starts at chapter 2 and then moves throughout history to chapter 22. Nowhere. Men kind of assume that when they read, but the book itself doesn't lead us to believe that. There is sequence language in John's seeing. But that doesn't mean that what he sees unfolds in a series of sequential events. Now let me illustrate to wake you up. I came up with my own apocalypsis in my office this week. I want you to try to put yourself in the, the seat of the original seer. I looked and I saw my coffee cup. On the cup were images of my children. Some were smiling, some were playing, some were staring. Some were young and then they were older. Then I looked and I saw my bookshelf. Then I heard what sounded like a tiny dump truck driving around on my desk. But when I turned, I looked and behold, it was my printer self-cleaning. Now, in that apocalypse, the apocalypse of Paul... My looking, my seeing, my hearing is described chronological. I looked and I saw this. Then I looked and I saw this. Then I looked and I saw this. But that doesn't mean that, I, that my coffee cup and my bookshelf and my printer were laid out in a historical timeline of events. That's just how I saw it. They, they, I was sitting... I'll give you a clue. or I'll, I'll uh, give you the, uh, the spoiler. I was sitting in my desk and I just looked up and started seeing stuff. So all of this took place within 28 seconds. But the way I describe it to you, and even especially when, you, when I talk about my coffee cup, <clears throat> my coffee cup, some of my children were young, and then they were old. What, what can that possibly mean? Well, I've got a picture of my children when they were young, and then you turn it, and there's a later picture of them. They're older, on the same cup. You see, that's kind of how John writes. He sees... And what he sees is a singular revelation. Now, he does see different visions, but they all fit into one singular revelation. But the fact that John sees in a sequence doesn't mean that what he sees only exists in an unfolding timeline. If you force that onto the book, then you have to assume that all of the events in chapter 22 follow chronologically all of the events in chapter 17 or chapter 11, and so on. But remember, what we are receiving is God's perspective. God's not subject to time like we are. Also remember that John is writing to seven real churches for their benefit. 
What John writes is useful and helpful to those churches as well as all churches. So John write, records sights and sounds which are meant to convey God's perspective on the world in the first century. And that same perspective is meant to span all centuries until Christ's return. In other words, what John sees is God's perspective on the entire church age. So it's not just the church in the first century. It's not just the church in the 21st century or the 33rd century or the 63rd century. However long church history goes, it's all of it. The various visions are all things which characterize the entirety of the church age. And yet those visions are rooted in things that the original seven churches would have understood. So if we were writing to seven churches in Asia Minor and we were trying to describe the awful government, we wouldn't say Kim Jong-un. They would have no, no comprehension of that. But if we made some sort of a reference to Rome or even one of the Caesars like Nero, they would get that. They understood that. That doesn't mean that everything is secluded and limited to Rome. That's what they knew of a crooked and uh, evil government. So on and so forth. So it had to be applicable then, but it's also timeless. Hendrickson refers to these things as principles of human conduct and moral government. Principles that were and will always be operative throughout the time between Christ's two comings. That's what we have in the book of the Revelation. Now, before we begin to look at the book itself... One of the rules of interpreting Scripture is you interpret less clear passages with clear passages. Start with what's plain and simple. And use that to help you understand what's not so plain and simple. So, from elsewhere in Scripture, what kind of things do we know will characterize life until Christ returns? I'm going to give you seven things. Purposefully, seven things. First, we know that Christ is always with His church and that His church exists for a particular purpose. We know that. I'll prove it. Matthew 28, 20. I am with you always to the end of the age. That's not hidden. That's not cryptic. We're not scratching our heads saying, I wonder what it means. It means that Christ is going to be with His church. Matthew 5.14, Jesus said, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. 1 Timothy 3.15, The church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church has a job, a purpose. Christ is with His church, and as long as the church is here, it stands as a light, a beacon of truth in the world always. That's never going to change. Number two, we know that believers will have tribulation in the world. John 16, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Christ will always be with His church. The church always has a purpose on the earth, which is to be a beacon of truth. And the church will have tribulation in the world. Thirdly, we know that God has not abandoned His people, but God hears their prayers and will vindicate His people. Luke 18, 1-8. And He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, Give me justice against my adversary. Think about that. Give me justice. She's crying out for justice. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to His saints, or His elect, 
who cry to Him day and night. Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Now, now think about all of the things in that little parable. We've got a woman crying out for justice. The unrighteous judge acts in a certain way. Surely a righteous God would act even more righteously for His elect who are crying out. He will give them justice. And then there's even a reference to the coming of the Son of Man. When the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? How is faith displayed in this parable? It's by the saints praying to God, calling out to Him for justice. God, no matter what happens in human history and in church history, God has not abandoned His people. He hears their prayers and He will vindicate His people accordingly. That is, according to their prayers. As they pray, God responds in vindication. Fourthly, we know that the persecution of the church, the tribulation that the church suffers in the world, is rooted in an ancient war. This didn't start at Pentecost. It didn't start in 70 A.D., we read in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. It's an ancient war. It started in the garden. And then Jesus says in John 15.18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. That's why the church suffers. Because there is a serpent, a devil, who hates a Christ. And he hates the people of that Christ. Number five, we know that those who continue in, in impenitence are only storing up wrath in spite of all of the warnings of God. Romans 2, 4b through 5. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. God, His very existence and His work is meant to draw men to repentance, leading them to repentance. Because they won't repent, they are storing up wrath. Men don't repent, and so wrath's going to come. There's no way to, to get around it except that they repent. Number six, we know that all this world has to offer us is contrary to God and will be done away with. 1 John 2, 15 to 17, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world or from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Notice John writing in his day, the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's always the case. This world has many things to offer us. They're contrary to God. They're always passing away. But the believer abides. And number seven, we know that through suffering, the church is strengthened and will be victorious. The church is strengthened through suffering. Romans 8, 35 to 37. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says, no. Notice the language. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Not being raptured out of these things were more than conquerors. Not being rescued away from them, but in all these things. As the church suffers persecution and tribulation and trials and attacks from the evil one, that is used by the head of the church to make his church lovely. That, that's his work. He's doing that, overruling that, we might say, using it for the purification of His bride. Now, none of that language is vague. 
None of that was in apocalyptic imagery. It was set straightforward. It's not explained by symbols. The revelation is symbolic language used to illuminate and illustrate those seven truths. Those things which the, other, the New Testament bears out very clearly, the revelation simply shows them using vivid symbolic imagery. To put it very simply, all of the pictures or visions that John sees run parallel to each other. You can see your picture there. The, the, the horizontal lines, they're all parallel. The visions John sees are parallel. They all describe the entirety of church history. They, they all are describing things that are going to characterize all of church history. And yet, they all move progressively further into what we call the eschaton or the end of the age. That's why, well, well I won't, I'll just show you. To summarize that point, there's nothing in chapter 22 that's not in chapter 1. Because chapters 1 through 3 are describing the same thing as chapters 20 to 22. Now it's revealed more and more. Some guys have called this progressive parallelism. I think that, that's actually what he calls it. Progressive parallelism or progressive synchronism. They're all the same thing, but they go a little bit further and a little bit further and a little bit further until by the end, chapter 22, we're actually seeing beyond the end of the age. Now what I want to do is walk through the book and prove that to you. So if you've got a Bible, the, the best thing you can do is flip the pages with me. If you're not doing that, you're just going to be staring at me flipping pages and it's going to be awkward. So, and I'm going to be looking down a lot because I'm, I'm looking at references and also turning in my Bible as well. I just want to show you, not taking William Hendrickson's view for, for just because he wrote a book about it. I want to show you that this is what the book is doing. So the first thing we can do is divide this book into two major sections, two big halves, not really halves. Chapters 1 through 11 and chapters 12 to 22. On your little diagram there, you can see that the bottom half is shaded dark and the top half is lighter. That's, that's to show that division. Again, this division is not necessarily clear and precise. Some, some men may say that the division happens at uh, 11, uh, some verses in chapter 11 and then goes into chapter 12. For the sake of simplicity, 1 to 11, 12 to 22. We can give these sections, these two titles that he has there, the church and the world, and Christ and the dragon. The church will suffer in the world. What is underlying that suffering? Christ and his persecution, or uh, the dragon and his persecution of the Christ. So the church and the world is what we'll look at first, chapters 1 through 11. This first section explains what is going to be our primary experience in this world and explains God's perspective on that experience. Those texts that I read, Matthew 28, 20, Matthew 5, 14, 1 Timothy 3, John 16, Luke 18, these are all our experience in the world as believers. First, we saw Christ is with His church and the church has been set up for a particular purpose. Notice Revelation 1 12 and 13. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man. Okay? Verse 20 of that same chapter. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. In chapter 1, we see Christ, the Son of Man, in the midst of His church, His lampstands. What's the job of the church? Well, what's the job of a lampstand? Uphold the light. The church has a job. The church has a purpose. And Christ is with His church. See it? Okay. We also know, and we'll see in this first section, that believers will have tribulation in the world. Revelation 1.9 I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. John, there on the island of Patmos, he was their partner in the tribulation. 
Revelation 2 and verse 2. I know your works, your toil and patient endurance. There Christ speaking to Ephesus, that church. In Revelation 2.9, Christ speaks to the church at Smyrna. And He says, I know your tribulation and poverty. Revelation 2.13, He speaks to Pergamum. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. There's tribulation in the churches. There we have the name of one martyr, Antipas. Christ is with His church. The church exists for a purpose. But that church, as it carries out its purpose, is going to have tribulation in the world. We also saw that God hears the prayers of His people and will vindicate them accordingly. Chapters 4 and 5, we see that while the church is undergoing the things that are described in chapters 1 through 3, John says, After this I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. While all of this is happening on the earth, He looks up into heaven and sees that Christ is on the throne. Christ is ruling and reigning. Christ is on the throne. The throne is unmoved and fixed. In chapter 5, verse 8, when He had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp with golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The saints are praying. Their prayers are before the throne of the Lamb. The Lamb takes the seal or the, the scroll, he unfolds, begins to unravel this scroll. He has authority over the scroll. He's the only one worthy to open the scroll. And as he breaks open this scroll, we see in chapter 6, these seals are opened up of trials and tribulation and persecution. But we see in Revelation 6.10, the saints cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood? Who's suffering during this time? The saints, as well as everybody else on the world. They're undergoing this, these trials and tribulation and suffering. The saints are under persecution. They're crying out for their blood to be avenged. Avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were killed as they themselves had been. Persecuted saints slain and there in the presence of God crying out for vindication. And then we see chapter 6 verses 12 to 17, the saints vindicated by some what I'm going to call temporal judgments but that conclude in... Well, we see this language in 6.17, the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? A picture of the final judgment already in chapter 6. We're reading of the final judgment. But what's interesting is these seals are broken open, these um, temporal trials, tribulations, sufferings, plagues, and things are happening on the earth, the way it's described here. Um, well, I won't go into much detail, but... The idea here is very much like was what came from Christ's mouth whenever they came to tell him about the, the blood that Pilate had mingled with the sacrifices and then he also mentions the falling of the tower. He uses these providential, a providential circumstance and a persecution circumstance to say, hey, forget about why these things happened. Use this as an opportunity to repent or you will likewise perish. So that's what's happening throughout the church age. There's always suffering. There's always tribulation and persecution. And if men will repent, they'll be saved. But if they don't repent, they will perish. In chapter 7, we see a picture of the glorified saints. A number sealed from the twelve tribes. Then it's a multitude from every tribe and language under heaven. And then at the end of chapter 7, just listen to the language. It's, it's, you'll see how... Plain this gets. Chapter 7, verse 17, the Lamb, for the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them. 
to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The almost verbatim language of chapter 21 and 22. There's a picture of the saints in glory in chapter 7. Right there in chapter 6 and 7, we have judgment and glory, but it's just a, a little glimpse, a little picture, not, not a whole lot of detail yet. So that's the first section. That's, that's what the saints can experience. The church on the world will continue. Christ is with His church. That church has a job to uphold the light of truth. As they do that, there will be strife, persecution, and tribulation. And as they undergo the tribulation and the persecution, and they cry out to God, He responds by uh, these, these other more trials, tribulations, and things on the earth. And eventually, the, the wicked will be judged and the saints will be glorified. That's the first major section. All of these things will characterize the entirety of the church age. This is always going to be the case. The second major section is chapters 12 to 22. In this section, we see the historical conflict underlying the war that produced all of this animosity against the church in the world. And that is the war between the serpent and the seed of the woman. It started in Genesis 3.15 and carries on throughout church history. This persecution is rooted in an ancient war we see in chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his head, seven diadems. He, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. The serpent wants to kill that child. But, you can continue reading, the child comes out, is taken up into heaven. Chapter 12, verse 17, we see that the devil and his helpers continue to persecute the followers of Christ. It says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Chapter 13, verse 7, The beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. An ancient war. The devil hates Christ. He will do whatever he can to get to Christ. If he can't stop the Christ from coming into the world, which is his... Second to last great attempt was when Herod had all the, ba the babies killed. If he can't stop the Christ, then what he can do is persecute the people of that Christ. And that's what we see throughout redemptive history. We also see that those who continue in impenitence are only storing up wrath in spite of all of God's warnings. We see this in chapters 15 and 16 with the, the bowls of wrath. Now, prior to the bowls, again, I'm not giving all of the details away, but prior to the bowls, there are trumpets. One of the phrases Hendrickson uses is this, trumpets warn, bowls pour out. If you don't heed the warning, then you're going to get the bowl. And that's what we see happening in 15 and 16. Chapter 16, verses 5 to 7, it says, I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. Why? For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The saints who are crying out from the altar in chapter 6 here are described by simply the altar and they are saying, finally, vindication has come. Your judgments are true. Why are these bowls of wrath being poured out? Because they shed the blood of the saints. It's all because of the attitude of the world against the people of Christ. And those who continue in impenitence are only storing up wrath. The third truth that we, or I guess this would be sixth truth that we saw was that all this world has to offer is contrary to God and will be done away with. We see this in chapter 18. 
the fall of Babylon. If you read through chapter 18, what you will see is men crying out because of the passing away of the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. They are watching it fall, and they're crying out about all of the things they're losing. As John said, the things of this world are passing away throughout history. The things that come up, they all come down. And yet, chapter 19, through all of this, the church continues triumphant because Christ has protected her as His bride and He comes to judge and to make war. And then the last truth we saw, through suffering, the church is strengthened and will be victorious. Chapters 21 and 22, we see the new heavens and the new earth. All evil is done away with. We read in 22.5, Night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Two major sections, 1 through 11, 12 to 22. In 1 through 11, we're seeing primarily the church and its struggle in the world. In 12 to 22, we're seeing sort of the, the underlying and overarching theme of that trouble that the church suffers, Christ and the dragon. Now, we're going to break those two sections down into seven smaller sections. When uh, Hendrickson does it, I think he starts with the seven smaller sections and then shows the two bigger sections. I'm doing it backwards. So hopefully this is not terribly confusing. Within those big sections, there are seven smaller sections. Um, and again, I've just enumerated them all. I just walked through them twice. I'm going to walk through them again. The first section, chapters 1 through 3. The focus of chapters 1 through 3 is Christ with His church. Christ continues by His Spirit and Word to minister in and to His churches, rebuking, reproving, correcting, comforting them. He's always going to be doing that. First section, 1 through 3. The entirety of the church age. Christ with His church. Speaking to them. The second section, chapters 4 through 7. Christ rules over suffering. While the church has its issues on the earth, Christ still rules, we see in chapters 4 through 7. He opens each of these seals of the scroll. That is, the sovereign Lord unfolds history. It brings great difficulty for all people, even His church, but the, righteous, the unrighteous will be condemned while in chapter 7 we see the righteous sealed, preserved, and brought to glory. 4 through 7. Now the, the reason it's helpful to break up these sections is because when I get to chapter 4, knowing that that's a, the second section, I don't start thinking, okay, where was I in history at the end of chapter 3? Or now where am I at in chapter 4? I know that chapter 4 is again showing me all of church history. It's another vision. So that's 4 through 7. Christ rules over suffering. Chapters 8 through 11, Christ's victorious church. In these chapters we see again great suffering on the earth in the form of trumpets. Those on earth do not repent. Notice chapter 9 verses 20 to 21. The rest of mankind who are not killed by these plagues, and we could go back and we see that it's a third, chapter 8, verse 7, a third of the earth, a third of the trees, a third of the grass, or all of the green grass. It, it's, it's portions, small portions in these trumpets. Verse 9, a third of the living creatures, a third of the ships. Verse 10, a third of the rivers. Verse 12, a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of their light. You see, it's all portions with the trumpets. Those, back to chapter 9, verse 20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So the trumpets came, they didn't repent. But, chapter 11... That doesn't affect the church. The church continues its witness in the form of the two witnesses in, chapter, in verses 1 to 13. And then in chapter 11, 15 to 19, the church is vindicated at the return of Christ. Notice the language, uh, chapter 11, verse 18. The nations raged, but your wrath came. The time for the dead to be judged. 
and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. That's the final judgment. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of His covenant was seen within His temple. Where else in the book do we see something shaped like the Ark of the Covenant in the temple of God? That's chapter 21. It's a, it's a glimpse. You see, it's almost like the angel pulls back and we see just a little bit and then he shuts it again. We've got to wait till chapter 21 to see the full picture. Christ's church is a victorious church. The next section is chapters 12 to 14. Christ opposed by the dragon or Christ and the dragon. Christ and His people are opposed by the dragon and His helpers, and yet in spite of this war, again, chapters, chapter 14, 1 to 5, the saints are sealed. 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. They have something on their foreheads, and the wicked have something on their foreheads. It's a distinguishing mark. There are the believers and the unbelievers. The saints are sealed and protected, as Christ would say, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Regardless of this war that's happening, no one can harm Christ's people. The next section is chapters 15 and 16. Final wrath on the impenitent. Those who did not repent at the sounding of the trumpets in chapters 8 and 9 are only storing up for themselves wrath, but we see in 15 and 16 that the wrath is poured out. We were talking today, Romans 1, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Throughout church history, this happens. Those who do not repent undergo the wrath of God. But again, Revelation 15, 2-4, the church is preserved perfectly calm as a sea of glass, and they're singing, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. The church is protected, even though wrath is coming on those who do not repent. The next section is... 17 to 19, the fall of Babylon and the beasts. This section focuses on the fall of what we might call the friends of Satan. While yet again the church is brought safely to her king, we saw that in, in chapter 19, the wedding supper of the Lamb, the church preserved. While Babylon falls, the church is triumphant. And then chapters 20 to 22... Very interestingly, the church at this point, or the church age, gets a very quick mention, barely even addressed. A bigger portion dealing with the final judgment, the defeat of Satan, the judgment, and then two entire chapters devoted to the victorious church, the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal state. So see how 21 and 22 go way farther while still describing the same things that have already been addressed shortly in other passages. So maybe you're able to at least begin to see these major themes over and over in the book. They're repeated throughout. Let's walk through it again. I want you to see these themes. A major theme that we've seen is the church. The church has a job to bear witness. In chapters 1 through 3, it's a lampstand. In chapter 6 and verse 9... When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Chapter 11, we have the two witnesses. Chapter 12, verse 11, they have conquered him by the blood of lamb and by the word of their testimony. Verse 17, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Chapter 15 and verse 2, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast. How did they conquer the beast? We just read it. By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Chapter 19, verse 10, Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, You must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. In chapter 20, it's, again, it's not quite so clear. It only gets a, a brief mention. And really that's implied. I'm, I'm going to give away some of my secrets. In chapter 20, we see that the devil 
Satan is bound for a thousand years and thrown into a pit that he might not deceive the nations. Now that's the negative. The devil cannot deceive the nations. What can happen during that time period? The church goes out and bears witness to the nations, which began after the death and resurrection of Christ. Christ said, when I'm lifted up, I'll draw, I'll draw all people to myself. When, when I am lifted up, or he said before his uh, crucifixion, and now the ruler of this world is cast out, and I'm going to draw the nations, all people to myself. That's what's happening throughout the church age. The devil can no longer stop the gospel from going forth. It will go forward. Does that binding of the devil mean that he, he doesn't do anything? No, it means he can't stop the gospel from going forth to the nation. The church has a job. Its job is to bear witness. Now what happens when the church bears this witness? Back to chapter 1. Again, there's tribulation. Chapters 2 and 3, they must endure suffering. In chapter 6 verse 9, again, the souls of those who are slain are crying out. In chapter 11 verse 7, we see that the beast actually conquers and kills the two witnesses. I think what's going to happen is the times will get so desperate, the church will suffer so desperately that it will appear as if it's completely gone. I don't think things are going to get better globally. I think they're going to get worse. Chapter 12, verse 17, again, the dragon makes war on the saints. Chapter 16 and verse 6 says, For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. Chapter 17, verse 14, They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. The people of the Lamb will also be a part of that war. Chapter 20, verse 4, we have a reference to those who are killed for their testimony beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God throughout the church age. The church is there. Christ is with His church. The church has a job. Bear witness. What is going to happen as the church bears witness? The world's going to hate it. The world's going to try to kill it with every fiber of its being. It's going to try to stomp out this light. But another theme that we see throughout the book is the preservation of the church. In chapters 1 through 3, Christ is holding the seven stars. He promises, I will come soon. In that section, which is chapter 4 through 7, in chapter 7, we've seen the multitude sealed from every tribe. In chapter 11, the breath of God revives the two witnesses. Chapter 14, 1 to 5, the 144,000, again. Chapter 16, verse 15, Christ keeps those who stay awake. Chapter 19, verses 6 to 8, the marriage supper of the Lamb, we see a reunion. And then 20, verse 9, the fire will come and consume the enemies of the church. And in 21 and 22, the church is with Christ forever. You see the theme throughout church history. The church will be persecuted, but Christ will preserve His church. We can see the glory of the church. Chapter 1, verse 6, Christ has made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. We've already been made a kingdom. The church will endure. We have, or our king has dominion. In chapter 2, verse 7, to the one who conquers. Chapter 2, verse 26, the one who conquers. Chapter 3, verse 12, the one who conquers. Verse 21, the one who conquers. And then the final state of the church is mentioned in sort of more veiled terms. But you see the church conquers. It will be victorious. It will have glory. In chapter 19, verse 7, the bride has been made ready. And in 20 and 22, the bride will come down adorned as a bride for her husband and God will deal with his people. So you see that theme. The church throughout the book, it has a job. It's going to be hated for its job. It will be victorious. Christ will protect it. It will be brought to glory. Another theme that we see is the world. We see the world's hatred for the church. In chapters 2 and 3, there's the synagogue of Satan. Some are imprisoned. Antipas has been killed. Chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, the people of the earth will rejoice at the death of the two witnesses. 
13.7, the beasts will make war on the saints. 16.6, the blood of the saints and the prophets have been, has been shed. 17.14, war against the Lamb, again, undergirds the war against the church. And in 20 and 22, the, in that section, in chapter 20, 19 and 20, we see that the whole world gathers to make war against Christ and His people. The world is going to hate the church. But what's going to happen to these people who hate the church? They're all going to mourn and wail when they see Christ come. They're going to call on the rocks to hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. Trumpets of judgment will come to warn them. Bowls of wrath will follow those trumpets. And eventually, throughout history, Babylon falls. The things of the world always fall. The nations, the cities, kingdoms of the world always fall. We'll see the world's judgment over and over. Chapter 1, we see Christ with a, a two-edged sword coming from His mouth. What does a sword do? A sword brings judgment. Chapter 1, judgment's coming. Chapter 6, verse 17, there's a reference to the great day of their wrath. Eleven eighteen. there's a time for the destroying the destroyers. And a lot more references to the reception of the, or, or the judgment that will come upon the world. Now the last thing that I want you to see quickly, and I've already mentioned this, is that progressive movement through the book. Moving into the consummation of the age. It's slowly revealed with hints and steps until finally by the end of the book we see that judgment has been poured out in the lake of fire and glory is revealed as God tabernacles with men. But that's not a new thing when you get to chapter 22. It's not like, whoa, what, what, what's happening here? Glory? What judgment? Whoa, huh? No, at the very beginning of the book, he's already showing you this is what's going to happen. And he shows it again and again and again, but it goes further and further. And that's the point of the, the parallel line there on your little chart. The bottom one, you can see it goes the furthest into the new heavens and the new earth. Progressive parallelism. The book contains seven visions each of them portraying principles that will exist throughout the church age. These principles are revealed from God's perspective to show that He is in complete control and that Christ will conquer and vindicate His people. In chapters 1 to 3, there's barely any mention of glory at all. Because that's what we see. That's kind of our experience. That's, and that's the picture of Christ. He's with His church. He's talking directly to them. And it's hard sometimes for the church to think of glory. But in 20 and 22, there's barely any mention of the church on earth at all. It's like the church on earth has been forgotten, caught up in the sights of the new heaven and the new earth. It's as if, and I'll say this in conclusion, it's as if God through this revelation, is lifting His people up higher and higher and higher over and above their present situation so that they might see further and further. If you're down low, you have a short view. You might can see the tops of some mountains, but as you come up higher, you can see more and more. And that's what this book does. It shows us where we are and says, here's where you are. I know where you are. And it begins to give these little hints. And with each step, we're picked up higher and higher so that we can see, you can picture a camera angle, more and more of God's perspective until finally what you see is God looking down on this tiny little thousand year thing where the devil's bound, the gospel's going forward, and judgment is going to come while the new heavens and the new earth are coming out of glory. It's God mediating grace to us so that we'll be at peace. In the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. That's the theme of the book. So let's pray, and then we'll stand and we'll sing again. Hopefully that will be helpful for you all.